Philip Keen, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is the Dollar Bin Podcast, your favorite comic book review show with me, Dees Casillas, the comic book review show where we talk about kind of obscure trade paperbacks, stuff not in the mainstream, and then we review a comic we bought at the Dollar Bin at our local comic book store, thrift store, antique store, whatever, and we talk about it and let you know if it's a hidden gem or if it truly does belong in the Dollar Bin. Today, we are talking about Black Panther, the 1998 Marvel Night series. We're going to be doing the whole first 12 issue run, uh, the first volume they did for Marvel Knights, and for our Dollar Bin Pick of the Week, 1993's Catwoman number one. And I hope you all enjoy this episode because this is the closest any nerds will get to two pussies at once. Nerds! Nerds! Now, don't get me wrong, I do see the irony of reviewing Black Panther during Black History Month. And listen, we're not doing it because of Black History Month. But we're not not doing it because of Black History Month. He was the original OG black guy in the Marvel Universe. We have to give him some props during February. Now, like I said, this entire run is from the Marvel Knights imprint line, which started in 1998. Uh, the creative team is Christopher Priest and Mark Teixeira. They did issues number one through six, and then Joe Jusco and Mike Manley finished it off issues number seven through 12, as far as a couple other uh, random fill-ins. Now, for those of you who don't know, the Marvel Knights line arguably single-handedly saved Marvel as a comic book company. We have talked in the past about Marvel's near entire collapse due to their crippling cocaine habit which caused bankruptcy in the 90s uh, and this was their last ditch attempt to recover now the cocaine habit is conjecture but it would explain some creative choices in the 90s then editor-in-chief at marvel bob harris contracted joe casada and jimmy palmiotti who were running event comics uh, which published the very popular at the time and very aloof ash in the 90s, Bigfoot was seen more often than Ash, but that comic was wildly popular, and we're going to review it as a dollar comic soon. But Joe and Jimmy had both worked at Marvel before, probably most notably on a run on X-Factor with Peter David. Now, Marvel was so desperate during these times that they were willing to give these upstart creators some of their characters that they didn't care anything about anyway, because, you know, fuck it. Daredevil, Punisher, The Inhumans, aka the future X-Men who hadn't had a real series in ever. And I'm pretty sure the Punisher was black at this time. Yeah, that really happened, guys. But Marvel had a better token black guy that survived the 70s, and that was Black Panther. <laughs> The king of the fictional African country Wakanda, they were technologically rich and real money rich due to a meteorite hitting their country. It was full of vibranium, which basically all gets stolen and raped and pillaged. So yeah, kind of like what white people did to actual Africa. Now keep in mind guys, this was a time before Marvel could force feed you characters through the movies and clever marketing and trick you into thinking that you actually love them so you buy the comics, even though these characters suck. They had to actually make the comics good and really put effort into them to move these books. It wasn't like now where the movies move the comic books and kids come and cross over and pick up a couple books because they want to see those same characters regularly. 
So Joe Casada hit up some buddies from the indie comic scene and asked if they'd stop following Fish on tour long enough to make comics for Marvel. Welcome, this is a farmhouse. We have cluster flies and bass. Joe Casada is really the reason Brian Michael Bendis ended up working at Marvel and having a lot of really lengthy runs. So I think we all agree that's debatable on whether that was a good thing or not. But he also talked Christopher Priest into writing Black Panther, which is actually more difficult than you'd think. Uh, Christopher Priest is a well-known African-American writer in the industry and a, just a fantastic writer all around. He's had some really, really great runs over the years. But Priest is on record as saying he didn't want to. He didn't have any good ideas for him and found him to just be the token Black Avenger. But wait, what does that make Photon then? Now this Black Panther run is broken down into two volumes that ran for 12 issues, kind of a maxi series that did spin off into its own regular monthly series again that ran a lot longer. This first volume is called The Client, has a great intro to Black Panther with art by Mark Teixeira, who does beautiful work here. Um, using Everett K. Ross as the narrator, uh, he's a man who works for the State Department and is T'Challa's handler in a unique angle but i think historically american history has taught us that letting white men tell the story of black people doesn't always work out that well christopher priest actually said he didn't take the gig on black panther until he found an interesting angle but he said he was watching the tv show friends which makes him the one black person that's ever watched friends and he really enjoyed the character Chandler. So he patterned Everett K. Ross after Chandler, which really you can see that in the comic book. If you go back and read it now, you can really see the similarities and how it worked in this first arc of the series. Now for you millennials, Friends is like the 90s version of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia before they realize people who are friends aren't actually nice to each other. Because I Oh, and the other significant difference is that It's Always Sunny is legitimately funny. The point of view of this story is really great and unique at first, though. Black Panther is almost a mystery, and they set up some interesting plot twists as this is kind of a spy thriller where there's some turmoil going on back in Wakanda. There's a lot of, like, deep state QAnon put on your tinfoil hat type stuff. It really does read like a Tom Clancy military thriller. The story is told out of order by Ross, which again is an interesting take on the narrative at first and does add some cleverness to it. It kind of keeps you intrigued. And the way they bounce it around is done fairly well for the first five issues. Oh, and the devil stops by. Nope, not that one. Nope, nope, not that one either. Wrong again. Not that one. That's the one. And the first volume is actually really good. I think Christopher Priest was the first writer to actually develop T'Challa as a character and not really be that token black guy on the Avengers who stands in the back. He really makes it a point to push T'Challa forward as a strong character and ridicule his history of just kind of the token black guy, which he really was for a long time. I mean, if you think about it, we didn't actually get strong black characters in Marvel until the late 60s, early 70s when black exploitation was huge. And all you got was literally a character named Black Panther and Luke Cage who had a giant afro and a crown. 
And Christopher Priest did leaps and bounds for ethnic characters in the late 90s in a time when we were way beyond when we should have had some really strong uh, characters of color. So I do thank him for that. And he makes the first volume very good. He lets you into T'Challa's world, understands from the inner workings, let you know that he is still from an African tribe, essentially, but it's a very developed one. So he walks this line of being ethical and true to his tribal roots, but also one of the smartest, richest, and most badass people on the planet. Where this book starts to fall apart is on the back nine of the series. Ross's point of view starts to wear thin and the, the whole I'm telling this out of order and there's quirky asides and you never know what's happening next in the narrative starts to become a crutch. It's like Quentin Tarantino smoked peyote and decided to write a comic book. The scenes get more compact. You have too many jump cuts and jumping around from story to story. And since it is told out of order, the narrative is very difficult to follow. Maybe not difficult to follow. It's just not enjoyable. It loses its appeal and the story starts to get splintered and scattered and doesn't allow you to really enjoy how they're trying to push it through this character of Everett K. Ross and his view and how he sees T'Challa. There's a lot of unnecessary dialogue. It's more procedural than appealing, really. They use a lot of exposition, too. There's large swaths of just explaining things that they could be talking about in dialogue. They could be showing on the page. But there's just large captions that'll fill up chunks and chunks of multiple pages, just explaining things that are either too in detail or we kind of already gleaned from the story or they could have told in some other fashion. So the point of view completely breaks down and becomes way less concise as more characters get involved and this plot with many characters and surprises about who's really the bad guy starts to unfold. Now the second book is called Enemy of the State. Really it should be called Enemy of the Reader because this becomes very bloated with far too many twists. This book is messier than the Kanye and Kim divorce. Also, Black Panther may have committed statutory rape. He for sure belongs on a watch list at least. Is that why he had to go back to Wakanda? Is T'Challa like the Roman Polanski of Marvel Comics and he's hiding places he won't get extradited from? Yeah, he maybe kind of gets it on with an underage girl. It's weird. We better check Epstein's flight logs for T'Challa's name. But in the end, the series, well, ends. It becomes a little unclear who the real bad guy is and who is the good guy. So for a story that started off so promising in the first half, it really crumbles and falls apart in the end and does not pay off the way it should. Part of the problem is with this book on the back end of the series, we also lose Mark Tesheria and gain two artists that are good, but not a great fit in Joe Jusco and Mike Manley. Joe Jusco does great art, but he just feels like he's doing a Tesheria impression. He's not doing his own work. Just seems like Marvel's trying to make you think Mark Tischieri is still on this book as hard as they can, but it's just slightly off. It's like if you ordered Mark Tischieri on the Wish app. Then the last quarter of the series, Mike Manley comes in. And Mike Manley is a good artist and he's very good at what he does. But what he does is fairly cartoony compared to the very dark, heavy, painted, gritty art that we had in the first part of this series. The dark vibe is gone, and it's a far cry from the previous artist. It's almost jarring. His style is just too cartoony for it, plus the art and coloring is bright. They chose a poor colorist to really brighten up this whole book, making it look like a Sunday paper comic. Instead of the dark, gritty comic it was, it was supposed to get you involved in this deep cover political thriller. 
With a book like this, you need to find someone who's raw, but also has a different style than Teixeira. Someone who can give you dark and gritty, but isn't just mimicking the same artist. Really having Manly end this book, uh, it seems to make it completely less dramatic and takes a lot of the edge out of it, making it much less of a pressure cooker situation. Also though, it's worth noting, the editors on this Marvel Knights line were Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti. Yeah, that's right, two meatheads from Queens. And it shows sometimes. Don't get me wrong, I like Joe and Jimmy, I think they're talented people, but there is a bevy of grammatical errors in exposition that could be cut from these books. They're not editors, they're artists. That's what they're good at. And when you put books in their hands, there's gonna be so many mistakes. There's just a ton of exposition that could definitely be cut out. There's literally just chunks of black blocks that they blasted over on pages to cover up exposition that I guess went to print too late and they printed over it. Or it's just something that was drawn on the page that they didn't like and they didn't ask it to be redrawn before it went to print. So they just blasted over it with these black blocks. It happened several times throughout the series. The lettering is very cheap looking. Uh, the narration boxes are not done well. It's not even a stylized choice. It just looks poorly done. This is a time when lettering looked some of the most beautiful at Marvel. When you go to their other books, every, you know, Spider-Man had a unique font, uh, unique block narration captions they used. X-Men had beautiful lettering during this time, which is very unique and stylized, something that was very specific to their books. And then they just chose a very plain, cheap looking thing that was done in MS Paint. Really a benefit for this book would have been having a real editor on the series. That would have made such a difference, but you know, that nasty cocaine habit. For issues one through five, this series is an eight. It's a great read. It doesn't really give you an ending, but if you just read one through five, you're really, really hooked. It's a great introductory arc to a comic book. But when you get to issues six through 12, the series is more like a five especially with the ending being so poor compared to the first half. The quality just drops off too much for this to really hold up as a complete arc, and I am judging it the entire 12-issue run. So unfortunately, I'm giving Black Panther number 1 through 12, the 1998 Marvel Knights series, a $6 rating, because the biggest chunk it then really lets us down, and the ending makes a huge difference on a comic book. I would like to note, if you like Christopher Priest, go pick up the short-lived DC comic series Zero, that's spelled X-E-R-O. It only ran for nine, 14 issues, something like that. But it was very good in an original concept uh, with art by the then unknown Criss Cross, who went on to big fame with Captain Marvel, with Peter David, among other things. It was a very good series. It had original concepts. It wasn't a rehash of something DC was already doing. I don't know if Priest pitched this idea or if it was something an editor cooked up and Priest wrote it, but I liked it a lot. It was also drawn by the very then unknown Crisscross. No, not, not that guy. But the guy who went on to fame drawing Captain Marvel with Peter David, as well as doing a bevy of other things and a very, very talented artist uh, who really has one of the most unique styles in comic books. What's he doing these days anyway? Sailing takes me away. And now for our dollar bin pick of the week, we have Catwoman number one. Cover date, August 1993. This book is written by Joe Duffy and art by Jim Ballant. 
Uh, now, Joe Duffy had a long career in comic books as an editor and a writer. Uh, she's been largely absent from comics since the early 2000s, uh, which is unfortunate because she was a pretty solid writer. I feel like there's a lot of things she could still be getting work on. It seems like female writers get pushed out of comics. Louise Simonson, among others, ones who had careers as editors slash writers and just kind of get pushed to the side. Maybe they don't develop with the times as new styles come in, but I think Joe Duffy would still be able to write some books. Since the early 2000s, she just works at the immigration department and probably makes way more money. Uh, and Joe, if you're listening to this, I've always been a huge fan. Please don't deport me. Now, Jim Ballant was made to draw Catwoman. He has an extensive run on Catwoman for almost six years, I believe, he was on the book. He also drew things like Evangeline, a.k.a. Sword Catwoman, Vampirella, a.k.a. Vampire Catwoman, and his creator-owned book, Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose, a.k.a. Occult Catwoman. But this guy can draw tits and legs. Probably guys, too. I don't know. I gotta say, this book is pretty strong 27 years later. Most books that were made anywhere in the 90s, especially the early 90s, definitely show their age. A lot of contrived dialogue, a lot of melodrama, a lot of blowhardy monologues, a lot of unnecessary leather, trench coats, pouches, guns, extreme, <laughs> blood. But Catwoman number one, doesn't seem very dated, actually. It's a great introduction to the character. It gives you some of her back history if you're new to Catwoman, but not so much that it feels bloated or shoehorned in. Uh, it sets up her place in Gotham. This is post-Nightfall, so Batman's already had his back broken by Bane. Bane's now kind of running things in Gotham, and Catwoman is doing contract work for him, stealing tiaras, because nobody looks better in a tiara than Bane. Keep in mind, this is shitty Schumacher Bane, not cool Christopher Nolan Bane. So she's a thief. Uh, she's not bad, but she's not good. Uh, she's out for herself. This really was the best version of Catwoman, and is, she's kind of only gone downhill since then. Bad Catwoman didn't make sense because she was never evil. She was never nefarious. She never uh, had intentions to rule the city. She was just trying to take care of herself, live pretty well, and kind of ball out and steal shit. She was never like a psychopath like Joe Crew wanted to murder Batman or the Riddler who wanted to put question marks at the end of all Gotham citizens' birth certificates so people always wonder when their real birthday is. October 4th, 1992? She was just a girl with a dream in leather and a whip, which coincidentally is my dream. <laughs> But this is the best version of Catwoman. Um, she was just out for herself, doing her freelance thing, not being a villain, because she was never a villain, but she wasn't uber good. She wasn't Batman's sidekick, uh, which is a terrible version of Catwoman. It's just distilled down this watered-down, impotent version of a character who has so much more depth. You just make her one-dimensional then. She's just Batwoman if she's just hanging out with Batman. She's a mercenary. Her moral ambiguity is what makes her intriguing. There was no clear lines for her, and that's what I liked about this series. I didn't read a lot of DC books back in the 90s, but Catwoman was one I picked up quite frequently, and it was very good very regularly. 
Chuck Dixon has a great long run with Joe Ballant on Catwoman, and I think that book holds up pretty well, especially considering it was a 90s series. Really, the only part that doesn't make sense in this book is she's working for Bane, and she has a handler who's one of Bane's goons that kind of interacts with her to get her gigs and brings the goods back to Bane, and then he gets the money and gives a cut of it to Selina Kyle. But there's a scene in this book where Catwoman cuts off another character who's about to use her real name, Selina Kyle, because the handler is there, and she doesn't want this handler to know her real name. This all happens in Catwoman's apartment with her roommate. So she brings this handler to her house where she lives with her roommate, but I don't want you to know my real name. But hey, can you hold my social security card? Also, I have to call my mom. She goes by her maiden name now. It's Martin. My first dog's name was Buster, and my elementary school mascot was a falcon. I don't know why I told you that information. So it's a little contradictory that she wouldn't want this guy to know her name, but also, hey, come hang out at my house after we steal stuff. So there's a few small things that don't really make sense, but overall, this was a great book. Plus, this is the best Catwoman costume. The purple with those knee-high black boots, the long black gloves, So all around, we have the best version of Selena Kyle. Moral ambiguity, which is nice from a woman in leather, and a great costume. The gray ones just kind of got sterile and boring. The purple was more dynamic. So overall, guys, Catwoman number one is not a dollar bin comic. Pick it up, find it, check it out if you can. Uh, So guys, that's it for today. This show is available in a myriad of places on YouTube where you get extra video content also on our Facebook page, the Dollar Bin Podcast, and our parent page, The Social Hour. You can also listen at DeeceComedy.com, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere fine podcasts are given to you for free. If you like what you hear, share it. Tell a friend, guys. Uh, Feel free to message me with suggestions on anything you'd like me to cover, whether it's a trade paperback, a series, or an individual issue out of the dollar bin. I just got to find it. Or you can send it to me. Other than that, guys, go to deescounty.com. Check out everything going on on the network. We've got shows at Social Hour, Some Imperfections, a couple other shows I do, and more coming. So that's it, guys. Thanks very much for joining us for the Dollar Bin Podcast. I've been Deece. Peace. Save.